Welcome to the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated by Dr. John Owen. We will be continuing to read from page 223 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourselves to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now, to SWRB's reading of the doctrine of justification by faith through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, explained, confirmed, and vindicated, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man come unto the Father but by Him. John 14, verse 6. Number 3. Setting aside the consideration of the grace and love of Christ, and the compact between the Father and the Son, as unto his undertaking for us, which undeniably proves all that he did in the pursuit of them to be done for us, and not for himself. I say, setting aside the consideration of these things, and the human nature of Christ, by virtue of its union with the person of the Son of God, had a right unto, and might have immediately been admitted into the highest glory whereof it was capable, without any antecedent obedience unto the law. And this is apparent from hence, in that, from the first instant of that union, the whole person of Christ, with our nature existing therein, was the object of all divine worship from angels and men, wherein consists the highest exaltation of that nature. It is true, there was a peculiar glory that he was actually to be made partaker of, with respect unto his antecedent obedience and suffering. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The actual possession of this glory was, in the ordination of God, to be consequential unto his obeying and suffering, not for himself, but for us. But, as unto the right and capacity of the human nature itself, all the glory whereof it was capable was due unto it from the instant of its union. For it was therein exalted above the condition that any creature is capable of by mere creation. And it is, by a Socinian fiction, that the first foundation of the glory of Christ was laid in his obedience which was only the way of his actual possession of that part of his glory, which consists in his mediatory power and authority over all. 
The real foundation of the whole was laid in the union of his person. Whence he prays that the Father would glorify him, as unto manifestation, with the glory which he had with him before the world was. I will grant that the Lord Christ was viator, whilst he was in the world, and not absolutely possessor. Yet I say withal, he was so, not that any such condition was necessary unto him for himself, but he took it upon him by a special dispensation for us. And, therefore, the obedience he performed in that condition was for us and not for himself. Number four. It is granted, therefore, that the human nature of Christ was made hupa namon. As the Apostle affirms, that which was made of a woman was made under the law. Thereby, obedience became necessary unto him, as he was and whilst he was viator. But this being by a special dispensation, intimated in the expression of it, he was made under the law, namely, as he was made of a woman, by a special dispensation and condescension expressed. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. The obedience he yielded thereon was for us, and not for himself. And this is evident from hence, for he was so made under the law, as that not only he owed obedience unto the precepts of it, but he was made obnoxious unto its curse. But I suppose it will not be said that he was so for himself, and therefore not for us. We owed obedience unto the law, and were obnoxious unto the curse of it. Or, hupadikoi to theo. Obedience was required of us, and was as necessary unto us, if we would enter into life, as the answering of the curse for us was, if we would escape eternal death. Christ, as our surety, is made under the law for us, whereby he becomes liable and obliged unto the obedience which the law required, and unto the penalty that is threatened. Who shall now dare to say that he underwent the penalty of the law for us indeed, but he yielded obedience unto it for himself only? the whole harmony of the work of his mediation would be disordered by such a supposition. Judah, the son of Jacob, undertook to be a bondsman instead of Benjamin, his brother, that he might go free. Genesis chapter 44 verse 33 There is no doubt but that Joseph might have accepted of this stipulation. Had he done so, the service and bondage he undertook had been necessary unto Judah, and righteous for him to bear, howbeit he had undergone it, and performed his duty in it, not for himself, but for his brother Benjamin. And unto Benjamin it would have been imputed in his liberty. So when the Apostle Paul wrote these words unto Philemon concerning Onesimus, A de T, A dike se, se, A aphelen tuta emoi, Elage, ego, apatiso. Verse 18, quote, If he hath wronged thee, dealt unrighteously or injuriously with thee, or oweth thee aught, 
wherein thou hast suffered loss by him, put that on mine account, or impute it all unto me. I will repay it, or answer for it all. End quote. He supposes that Philemon might have a double action against Onesimus. The one injurium, and the other demin, or deputy, of wrong and injury, and loss or debt, which are distinct actions in law. Quote, if he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, end quote. Hereon he proposes himself and obliges himself by his express obligation. Ego palas, agrafa te, eme keri. Quote, I, Paul, have written it with my own hand, end quote that he would answer for both and pay back a valuable consideration if required. Hereby was he obliged in his own person to make satisfaction unto Philemon. But yet, he was to do it for Onesimus and not for himself. Whatever obedience, therefore, was due from the Lord Christ, as to his human nature, whilst in the form of a servant, either as a man or as an Israelite, Seeing he was so not necessarily by the necessity of nature for himself, but by voluntary condescension and stipulation for us. For us it was, and not for himself. Number five. The Lord Christ, in his obedience, was not a private, but a public person. He obeyed as he was the surety of the covenant as mediator between God and man. This, I suppose, will not be denied. He can by no imagination be considered out of that capacity. But what a public person does as a public person, that is, as a representative of others and an undertaker for them, whatever may be his own concernment therein, he does it not for himself, but for others. And if others were not concerned therein, if it were not for them, what he does would be of no use or signification. Yea, it implies a contradiction that anyone should do anything as a public person and do it for himself only. He who is a public person may do that wherein he alone is concerned, but he cannot do so as he is a public person. Wherefore, as Socinus and those who follow him would have Christ to have offered for himself, which is to make him a mediator for himself, his offering being a mediatory act, which is both foolish and impious. So to affirm his mediatory obedience, his obedience as a public person, to have been for himself and not for others, has but little less of impiety in it. Number six, it is granted that the Lord Christ, having a human nature, which was a creature, it was impossible, but that it should be subject unto the law of creation. For there is a relation that does necessarily arise from and depend on the beings of a creator and a creature. Every rational creature is eternally obliged from the nature of God and its relation thereunto to love him, obey him, depend upon him, submit unto him, and to make him its end, blessedness and reward. But, 
The law of creation, thus considered, does not respect the world and this life only, but the future state of heaven and eternity also. And this law, the human nature of Christ, is subject unto in heaven and glory, and cannot be so whilst it is a creature and not God, that is, whilst it has its own being. Nor do any men fancy such a transfusion of divine properties into the human nature of Christ, as that it should be self-subsisting, and in itself absolutely immense. For this would openly destroy it. Yet none will say that he is now Hupanaman, quote, under the law, end quote, in the sense intended by the apostle. But the law in the sense described, the human nature of Christ was subject unto, on its own account, whilst he was in this world. And this is sufficient to answer the objection of Socinus, mentioned at the entrance of this discourse, namely, that if the Lord Christ were obliged unto obedience for himself, then might he, if he would, neglect the whole law or infringe it. For, besides that, it is a foolish imagination concerning that, quote, holy thing, end quote, which was hypostatically united unto the Son of God, and thereby rendered incapable of any deviation from the divine will, the eternal, indispensable law of love, adherence, and dependence on God, under which the human nature of Christ was and is as a creature, give sufficient security against such suppositions. There is another consideration of the law of God, namely, as it is imposed on creatures by a special dispensation for some time and for some certain end, and with some considerations, rules, and orders that belong not essentially unto the law, as before described. This is the nature of the written law of God which the Lord Christ was made under, not necessarily as a creature, but by a special dispensation. For the law, under this consideration, is presented unto us as such, not absolutely and eternally, but whilst we are in this world, and that with this especial end, that by obedience thereunto we may obtain the reward of eternal life. And it is evident that the obligation of the law under this consideration, ceases when we come to the enjoyment of that reward. It obliges us no more formally by its command, do this and live, when the life promised is enjoyed. In this sense, the Lord Christ was not made subject unto the law for himself, nor did yield obedience unto it for himself. For he was not obliged unto it by virtue of his created condition. Upon the first instance, of the union of his natures, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, he might, notwithstanding the law that he was made subject unto, have been stated in glory. For he that was the object of all divine worship needed not any new obedience to procure for him a state of blessedness. And had he naturally, merely, by virtue of his being a creature, been subject unto the law in this sense, he must have been so eternally, which he is not. 
For those things which depend solely on the natures of God and the creature are eternal and immutable. Wherefore, as the law in this sense was given unto us, not absolutely, but with respect unto a future state and reward, so the Lord Christ did voluntarily subject himself unto it for us. And his obedience thereunto was for us, and not for himself. These things, added unto what I have formerly written on this subject, whereunto nothing has been oppressed but a few impertinent cavils, are sufficient to discharge the first part of that charge laid down before, concerning the impossibility of the imputation of the obedience of Christ unto us, which indeed is equal unto the impossibility of the imputation of the disobedience of Adam unto us, whereby the apostle tells us that, quote, we were all made sinners, end quote. Roman numeral number two. The second part of the objection or charge against the imputation of the obedience of Christ unto us is, quote, that it is useless unto the persons that are to be justified, for whereas they have in their justification the pardon of all their sins, they are thereby righteous, and have a right or title unto life and blessedness. For he who is so pardoned as not to be esteemed guilty of any sin of omission or commission, wants nothing that is requisite thereunto, for he is supposed to have done all that he ought and to have omitted nothing required of him in a way of duty. Hereby he becomes not unrighteous, and to be not unrighteous is the same as to be righteous, as he that is not dead is alive. Neither is there, nor can there be, any middle state between life and death. Wherefore, those who have all their sins forgiven have the blessedness of justification, and there is neither need nor use of any farther imputation of righteousness unto them. End quote. And sundry other things of the same nature are urged unto the same purpose, which will be all of them either obviated in the ensuing discourse or answered elsewhere. Answer. This cause is of more importance and more evidently stated in the scriptures than to be turned into such niceties, which have more of philosophical subtlety than theological solidity in them. This exception, therefore, might be dismissed without farther answer than what is given us in the known rule, that a truth well established and confirmed is not to be questioned, much less relinquished, on every entangling sophism though it should appear insoluble. But, as we shall see, there is no such difficulty in these arguings but what may easily be discussed. And, because the matter of the plea contained in them is made use of by sundry learned persons, who yet agree with us in the substance of the doctrine of justification, namely, that it is by faith alone, without works, through the imputation of the merit and satisfaction of Christ, I shall, as briefly as I can, discover the mistakes that it proceeds upon. Number one, it includes a supposition that he who is pardoned of his sins of omission and commission is esteemed 
to have done all that is required of him, and to have committed nothing that is forbidden. For, without this supposition, the bare pardon of sin will neither make, constitute, nor denominate any man righteous. But this is far otherwise, nor is any such thing included in the matter of pardon. For, in the pardon of sin, neither God nor man does judge that he who has sinned has not sinned, which must be done. If he who is pardoned be esteemed to have done all that he ought, and to have done nothing that he ought not to do. If a man be brought on his trial for any evil act, and being legally convicted thereof, is discharged by sovereign pardon, it is true that in the eye of the law he is looked upon as an innocent man, as unto the punishment that was due unto him. But no man thinks that he is made righteous thereby, or is esteemed not to have done that which really he has done, and wherefore he was convicted. Joab and Abathar the priest were at the same time guilty of the same crime. Solomon gives order that Joab be put to death for his crime, but unto Abathar he gives a pardon. Did he thereby make, declare, or constitute him righteous? Himself expresses the contrary, affirming him to be unrighteous and guilty. Only he remitted the punishment of his fault. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 26. Wherefore, the pardon of sin discharges the guilty person from being liable or obnoxious unto anger, wrath, or punishment due unto his sin. But it does not suppose nor infer in the least that he is thereby or ought thereon to be esteemed or adjudged to have done no evil and to have fulfilled all righteousness. Some say pardon gives a righteousness of innocency, but not of obedience. But it cannot give a righteousness of innocency absolutely such as Adam had, for he had actually done no evil. It only removes guilt, which is the respect of sin unto punishment, ensuing on the sanction of the law. And this supposition, which is an evident mistake, animates this whole objection. The like may be said of what is in like manner supposed, namely, that not to be unrighteous, which a man is on the pardon of sin, is the same with being righteous. For if not to be unrighteous be taken primitively, it is the same with being just or righteous. For it supposes that he who is so has done all the duty that is required of him that he may be righteous. But not to be unrighteous negatively, as the expression is here used, it does not do so. For, at best, it supposes no more but that a man as yet has done nothing actually against the rule of righteousness. Now, this may be when yet he has performed none of the duties that are required of him to constitute him righteous, because the times and occasions of them are not yet. And so it was with Adam in the state of innocence which is the height of what can be attained by the complete 
pardon of sin. Number two, it proceeds on this supposition that the law, in case of sin, does not oblige unto punishment and obedience both, so as that it is not satisfied, fulfilled, or complied with all, unless it be answered with respect unto both. For if it does so, then the pardon of sin, which only frees us from the penalty of the law, does yet leave it necessary that obedience be performed unto it, even all that it does require. But this, in my judgment, is an evident mistake, and that such as does not, quote, establish the law, but make it void, end quote. And this I shall demonstrate. Parentheses number one. The law has two parts, or powers. First, its preceptive part, commanding and requiring obedience with a promise of life annexed. Quote, do this and live, end quote. Secondly, the sanction or supposition of disobedience, binding the sinner unto punishment or a meet recompense of reward, quote, in the day that thou sinnest, thou shalt die, end quote. And every law, properly so-called, proceeds on these suppositions of obedience or disobedience. Whence, its commanding and punishing power are inseparate from its nature. Parentheses number two. This law, wherefore we speak, was first given unto man in innocence, and therefore the first power of it was only in act. It obliged only unto obedience. For an innocent person could not be obnoxious unto its sanction, which contained only an obligation unto punishment, on supposition of disobedience. It could not, therefore, oblige our first parents unto obedience and punishment both, seeing its obligation unto punishment could not be an actual force, but on supposition of actual disobedience. A moral cause of, and motive unto obedience it was, and had an influence into the preservation of man from sin. Unto that end, it was said unto him, quote, In the day thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. End quote. The neglect hereof, and of that ruling influence, which it ought to have had on the minds of our first parents, Open the door unto the entrance of sin. But it implies a contradiction that an innocent person should be under an actual obligation unto punishment from the sanction of the law. It bound only unto obedience, as all laws, with penalties due before their transgression. But, parentheses number three, on the committing of sin, and it is so with everyone that is guilty of sin, man came under an actual obligation unto punishment. This is no more questionable than whether at first he was under an obligation unto obedience. But then the question is, whether the first intention and obligation of the law unto obedience does cease to affect the sinner, or continue so as at the same time to oblige him unto obedience and punishment, both its powers being an act towards him. And hereunto I say, brackets number one, had the punishment threatened been 
immediately inflicted unto the utmost of what was contained in it, this could have been no question. For man had died immediately, both temporarily and eternally, and been cast out of that state wherein alone he could stand in any relation unto the preceptive power of the law. He that is finally executed has fulfilled the law, so as that he owes no more obedience unto it. But, brackets, number two, God in his wisdom and patience has otherwise disposed of things. Man is continued a viator still in the way unto his end and not fully stated in his eternal and unchanging condition wherein neither promise nor threatening reward nor punishment could be proposed unto him. In this condition he falls under a twofold consideration. First, of a guilty person and so is obliged unto the full punishment that the law threatens. This is not denied. Second, of a man, a rational creature of God, not yet brought unto his eternal end. Brackets number three. In this state, the law is the only instrument and means of the continuance of the relation between God and him. Wherefore, under this consideration, it cannot but still oblige him unto the obedience, unless we shall say that by his sin he has exempted himself from the government of God. Wherefore, it is by the law that the rule and government of God over men is continued whilst they are in statu viatorum. For every disobedience, every transgressions of its rule and order as to its commanding power cast us afresh and farther under its power of obliging unto punishment. Neither can these things be otherwise. Neither can any man living, not the worst of men, choose but judge himself, whilst he is in this world, obliged to give obedience unto the law of God, according to the notices that he has of it by the light of nature or otherwise." A wicked servant that is punished for his fault, if it be with such a punishment as yet continues his being and his state of servitude, is not by his punishment freed from the obligation unto duty, according unto the rule of it. Yea, his obligation unto duty with respect unto that crime for which he was punished is not dissolved until his punishment be capital and so put an end unto his state. Wherefore, seeing that by the pardon of sin we are freed only from the obligation unto punishment, there is moreover required unto our justification and obedience unto what the law requires. And this greatly strengthens the argument in whose vindication we are engaged. For, being sinners... We are obnoxious both unto the command and the curse of the law. Both must be answered or we cannot be justified. And as the Lord Christ could not by his most perfect obedience satisfy the curse of the law, dying thou shalt die, so by the utmost of his suffering he could not fulfill the command of the law. Do this and live. Passion, as passion, 
is not obedience. Though there may be obedience and suffering, as there was in that of Christ unto the height. Wherefore, as we plead that the death of Christ is imputed unto us for our justification, so we denied that it is imputed unto us for our righteousness. For by the imputation of the sufferings of Christ, our sins are remitted or pardoned, and we are delivered from the curse of the law, which he underwent. But we are not thence esteemed just or righteous, which we cannot be without respect unto the fulfilling of the command of the law, or the obedience by it required. The whole matter is excellently expressed by Grotius in the words before alleged. Non-English words. Parenthesis number four. The objection mentioned proceeds also on this supposition, that pardon of sin gives title unto eternal blessedness in the enjoyment of God. For justification does so, and, according to the authors of this opinion, no other righteousness is required thereunto but pardon of sin. That justification does give right and title unto adoption, acceptation with God, and the heavenly inheritance. I suppose will not be denied, and it has been proved already. Pardon of sin depends solely on the death or suffering of Christ. Quote, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. End quote. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. But suffering for punishment gives right and title unto nothing, only satisfies for something. Nor does it deserve any reward. It is nowhere said, suffer for this and live, but do this and live. These things, I confess, are inseparably connected in the ordinance, appointment, and covenant of God. Whosoever has his sins pardoned is accepted with God, has right unto eternal blessedness. These things are inseparable, but they are not one and the same. And by reason of their inseparable relation, are they so put together by the Apostle. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Quote, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. End quote. It is the imputation of righteousness that gives right unto blessedness. But pardon of sin is inseparable from it and an effect of it, both being opposed unto justification by works or internal righteousness of our own. But it is one thing to be freed from being liable unto eternal death, and another to have right and title unto a blessed and eternal life. It is one thing to be redeemed under the law, that is, the curse of it, another to receive the adoption of sons, one thing to be freed from the curse, another to have the blessings of Abraham upon us. As the Apostle distinguishes these things, Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 and 14. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. And so does our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 26 verse 18. Quote, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance. End quote. A lot and right to the inheritance. Quote, Amongst them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. End quote. Aphesis hamartion, which we have by faith in Christ, is only a dismission of sin from being pleadable unto our condemnation. On which account, quote, there is no condemnation unto them that are in Christ Jesus, end quote, but a right and title unto glory, or the heavenly inheritance, it gives not. Can it be supposed that all the great and glorious effects of present grace and future blessedness should follow necessarily on and be effective of mere pardon of sin? Can we not be pardoned but we must thereby of necessity be made sons, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ? Pardon of sin is in God with respect unto the sinner a free, gratuitous act. Quote, forgiveness of sin through the riches of His grace. End quote. But with respect unto the satisfaction of Christ, it is an act in judgment. For the consideration thereof, as imputed unto him, does God absolve and acquit the sinner upon his trial. But pardon on a juridical trial, on what consideration soever it be granted, gives no right nor title unto any favor, benefit, or privilege, but only mere deliverance. It is one thing to be acquitted before the throne of the king of crimes laid unto the charge of any man, which may be done by clemency, or on other considerations. Another, to be made his son by adoption, and heir unto his kingdom. And these things are represented unto us in the scripture as distinct, and depending on distinct causes. So are they in the vision concerning Joshua the high priest. Zechariah chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, quote, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre on his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. End quote. It has been generally granted that we have here a representation of the justification of a sinner before God. And the taking away of filthy garments is expounded by the passing away of iniquity. When a man's filthy garments are taken away, he is no more defiled with them, but he is not thereby clothed. This is an additional grace and favor thereunto, namely, to be clothed with change of garments. And what this raiment is, is declared. Isaiah 61 verse 10, quote, He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, end quote. Which the apostle alludes unto, Philippians chapter 3 verse 9. Wherefore, these things are distinct, namely, the taking away of the filthy garments and the clothing of us with change of raiment or the pardon of sin 
and the robe of righteousness. By one, we are freed from condemnation. By the other, we have a right unto salvation. And the same is in like manner represented. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 6 to 12. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.